Hi, and welcome to Not Shireside Chats, actually. Yes, before we get started, I have a quick announcement. Shireside Chats has been officially renamed Fandom Made Me, which pretty much means exactly what it says on the tin. Fandom Made Me will continue to feature interviews with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that made them who they are. We're going to continue to be very cozy and drink tea and have a lot of fun. We're about three months into the podcast now, and so many of you have written in to say that you really enjoy the show, and I have to say that I'm incredibly grateful. I am also grateful for the very honest feedback that the name was a little bit confusing. You know, a lot of people thought this was a Lord of the Rings podcast, but they weren't Lord of the Rings fans, and... You know, I just really wanted to clear up that confusion and make this show as accessible as possible. We're also moving new episode release day, so every other week you can tune in for a new episode on Tuesdays. Today's episode is about self-care and fan activism, what it looks like to rest and recuperate in fandom, and most importantly, avoiding toxicity in online fan spaces. Plus, gay pirates. That's right. We're talking about the show Our Flag Means Death, but if you haven't seen it, don't worry, because there are no spoilers in this episode. Our guests this week are Tanya Cook and Kayla Joseph, the co-authors of Fandom Acts of Kindness, a heroic guide to activism, advocacy, and doing chaotic good, which is available in stores now. Link in the show notes. You should check it out because it's amazing. Tanya Cook is a sociology professor at the Community College of Aurora in Colorado. Cook researches popular culture and fandom-based activism and charity work. Kayla Joseph is a licensed clinical psychologist with a focus in LGBTQ psychology. Kayla also regularly presents on healthcare equity, systems improvement, and gender-affirming care. Together and individually, Tanya and Kayla present frequently on fan activism at cons around the country, and it was such a pleasure to have them on the show. Now, full disclosure, this was one of the very first episodes that I recorded, and afterwards, I discovered that the sound quality was a little less than ideal. And also, you'll hear me introduce this to them as Shireside Chats. So please bear with us, and we hope you'll enjoy this illuminating conversation. As usual, this podcast and the work of Fandom Forward can't be done without your support. If you can become a Patreon subscriber, please consider doing so at patreon.com slash fandomforward, or you can go to fandomforward.org forward slash donate. Now, on to the show. Tanya Cook and Kayla Joseph, welcome to Shireside Chats. How are you guys doing today? Good, thank you. Very relaxed. Very relaxed, cozy. (laughs) Well, this is the coziest activism podcast on the internet, I think. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to get super cozy. What are you two drinking today? It's a black tea from Smith Tea Maker. And I happen to be in Portland, Oregon for this recording. And they're a local tea place. And it's a specialty variety for Valentine's Day called Lover's Leap. And it has rose petals and chamomile and bergamot and a black tea. It's really good. It's nice. That sounds very romantic. I love that. (laughs) And I am drinking uh, good old celestial seasonings and it's a chamomile and vanilla. Delicious. I'm actually having chamomile tea as well, though I can't remember what brand it is. It's chamomile. Pretty basic. 
So the two of you strike me as a bit of an unlikely duo. Tanya, you're a sociology professor, and Kayla, you are a licensed clinical psychologist that focuses on LGBTQ psychology. Why did the two of you decide to start working together, and why did you write a book about fan activism? That's a good question. I will jump in, I suppose. Uh, We could say that this is all Misha Collins's fault if he wanted to point at one person. (laughs) Um, for the reason we know each other. We both got into the Supernatural fandom independently. We didn't know each other. And I started thinking about it academically, like from my sociology background, and was really interested in things like what Fandom Forward at the time used to be known as a different name, what they were doing and what Gish, Misha's scavenger hunt that he ran for many years, was doing in support of their charity, Random Acts. And I started to write about it and think about it from a social science background. I thought this really sounds a lot like what I know about social movements, like how they start, where they get going, the different stages of them. And I very nascent, very early stages proposal sent something off to a conference and it was picked up. And essentially, Misha somehow saw this and reshared it on Twitter and uh, Facebook and keeping in mind, I'm a community college professor with hundreds, maybe, if I'm generous, maybe up to thousand followers, thousand single. And so when someone with millions of followers on Twitter shares your things, your social media just explodes. (laughs) So that was a fun experience. But that's how Kayla found my work and then reached out to me, looked me up and reached out to me on my professional email. And it was really perfect because they will talk about this, but they have a background that I don't have, right, in clinical psychology. And so much of this work and the activism is both based in and deals with mental health issues that I really felt that that was a great pairing in terms of, I have a skill set that looks at community and power dynamics and institutions, and they have a skill set that's looking at more individualized expressions and and challenges. and, And just having that piece together was really helpful and supportive. Like, peanut butter and chocolate, right? (laughs) So. Well, and it was good timing too, because I had just started to read about fandom studies as even even a possibility of, of something that I could be researching. And so when I reached out, it was because I saw this tweet and went, oh, this is exactly what I'm wanting to do. And it's really exciting. And I wonder if this is something that we could do together. I'm the kind of person who prefers to collaborate if I'm going to do any kind of research. And so it was well-timed and I have a little bit of a background in sociology from undergrad in addition to psychology. So it was also, I think, a nice way to weave those two things together. Yeah, I was speaking with a really well-known podcaster and journalist recently, and he told me that he thought fandom was this kind of interesting, underexplored academic field of research. I think that there's a lot there. You see a lot of sociology research on entertainment and pop culture, but not so much on the fandom side? I think it's interesting. I don't know everything. I'll just say that now. I know a lot. (laughs) You mean you don't? I know. It's so disappointing. Maybe three more cups of this tea, I'll I'll know everything. But no, it's because it's caffeinated and I need that. So I agree. I think it is an understudied field from a social science perspective. However, I didn't realize that fan studies and pop culture studies were 
an entire discipline of academic research until I started looking at this. And that was a really eye-opening experience too, like folks like Henry Jenkins and other people like Lynn Zavernis, who we've collaborated with, and other big name researchers have looked at fans and fan activism, not fan activism as much, but fandom and some of the elements that we also explore in our work and are inspired by. However, I definitely get a really interesting reaction from sociologists because for me, I go, this is y'all, we need to pay attention to this. This is community. This is activism. This hits all of those touchstones that we would look at. But it tends to, as in popular, broader culture more generally, I think for some of the same reasons, get dismissed a little bit as not serious activism or not real activism. And I take issue with that. So I am very, in a very polite menace kind of way, trying to correct that, right? And say, no, this is activism. This is social movements. It doesn't look like what it's looked like historically from our literature. And y'all over here in Soch need to be talking to folks in fan studies and pop culture. Yeah, it is fascinating. They're, I'm hoping I'm one of the bridges between those two fields because they do really have a lot to say to one another and a lot in common. Yeah. And I should say that I actually do know a lot of the professors whose research focuses on fandom. Henry Jenkins, obviously. Professor Ashley Hank, who's a friend of mine, and we collaborated on the politics issue of the Journal of Transformative Works and Culture. I wrote a symposium piece for them, and she edited that edition a few years ago. And then, of course, uh, Suzanne Scott, all wonderful PhDs with a lot to say about fandom. I guess when I say that fandom is underexplored, I mean that in in the mainstream sense. You don't see a lot of reporting on it. You don't see it kind of, it's not a major. It's not its own field of study. If you get into specific programs at very few universities around the country. So I think it's really interesting, by the way, Tanya, that you chose to focus on fandom as part of your work. So I'm a teaching professor. I teach at the Community College of Aurora. So research is not part of my job specifically mm-hmm. my job is teaching and that's i love teaching so that's quite intentional on my part but i also like to write and think about i like to think about things um, so <laughs> this is a bit of a my fun time like i think like many of your listeners or folks in fandom i don't just casually enjoy things we go all in right mm-hmm. we're invested we want to talk about it we want to think about it we want to use our sociological imagination, if you will, to try to engage with this media product. It inspires us. It sometimes enrages us and challenges us. There's a reason for that. So this to me is very much about how I show up as the person I am in the world, but with my particular background too. Yeah. So this was all kind of just things I started thinking about and and writing about, met Kayla and things sort of went from there in terms of getting to do all these wonderful experiences and talking with fans. And I really, one thing I wanted to say that I do think is missing in the research is focusing on the fans. What are the fans doing? What's important to them? Celebrating them, lifting them up as examples, because too often when fans are discussed in the media, it's in such a negative way, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm not Pollyanna here. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't engage in in some of the troubling aspects. We should talk about that. But too often, One Direction fans or fandoms that tend to be majority non-cisgender men, frankly, are not perceived as legitimate or important in the way that football is perceived as legitimate and important. 
So mm-hmm. I find that interesting. And I, we very much wanted to look at all these amazing things that fans are doing to make the world a better place. They, they are not passive consumers of this media by any judgment, right? By any evaluation. So that was a big goal of ours with this work. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who have not yet read Fandom Acts of Kindness, it really is a great primer on fan activism. If you've been a fan activist for a long time, you'll still find something to learn from it. You'll find it illuminating and maybe some of it pretty familiar, but there's always something new in there. But if you're new to fan activism and you're curious, if you're a fan who has all of this pent up fanish passion and energy, this book will really help you identify how to align your fandoms with your values and then help you make a game plan to identify the causes that you can support through fan activism, which which I think is really cool. And Kayla, I want to get back to your expertise as a clinical psychologist with a focus on LGBTQ psychology. So how does that play in into this book? Yeah, so part of that is just even how it plays into academic fandom. So academic fandom comes out of the same roots as queer theory does. This idea of exactly what Tanya mentioned, it's been so stigmatized for so long that fans started to say, well, why aren't we researching ourselves? Maybe researchers are asking the wrong questions. And that's exactly what queer theory does. It was queer people, queer scientists saying, hey, maybe the reason we're being pathologized is that people don't know us and they're not asking us the right questions. And so when we were putting together this book, one of the things that we draw on a lot is queer activism and examples of that are given throughout, but it's also really at the root of just where this area of study even comes from. Right on. I think the most valuable takeaway for me from this book was the idea of how to make activism sustainable through self-care, through avoiding burnout, through avoiding the toxic pitfalls of fandom and activism as separate and intertwined entities. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. I think that this is a particularly important book when it comes to addressing the problem of burnout. But one thing I wanted to bring up was uh, the idea of pleasure activism. Have you read Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown? It's a really great book. No, I haven't. One of the really valuable things about this book is the section on knowing your why. And I think that this is particularly important when it comes to avoiding burnout and making activism sustainable for yourself. One of the authors who has really inspired me has been Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called Pleasure Activism, which basically focuses on the question of how do we make social justice the most pleasurable human experience? And to me, fan activism is all about that. Fandom is this powerful source of energy and creativity. And I think that the best thing you can do if you want to do acts of justice and build your community is to channel the fun stuff that way and make it pleasurable. Fan activism to me is pleasure activism. And actually, I had a great conversation with Emma Watson about that a couple of years ago which was really freaking cool, Hermione Granger. But oh, I did want to ask you a question. So I'm speaking this week at Tufts University's Tisch College of Civic Life, which is my alma mater, about fan activism. And a lot of the questions that I'm going to receive, and this podcast will probably come out after the talk, but I know that a few of the questions are about fandoms like Beyonce, BTS, Taylor Swift, 
which is not really an area of focus of this book. It's really more more geeky activism. Is there a particular reason why you're focused on the geeky stuff? Is it just that it reflects sort of the lens that you have as as fans? Yeah, I would say I think that a couple of reasons for me, and I'll let Kayla speak for for their perspective on this, but these are the fandoms we're in (laughs) for the most part, or that we've found a home in. And along with that, they seem to be the most social movement-esque. So that's why examples like Fandom Forward and Random Acts are really, they're not fans strictly like coming together and doing charity work. And not that there's anything wrong with that. That's also, in my opinion, activism and important and very much needed in the world and more power to that side of things as well. But what sets, I think, fan activism apart is when you have a sustained organization that is doing social justice work and that is trying to actually cause change politically, socially, culturally, possibly economically, and have that be sustained. So it's not a one shot, let's help the people of X place with Y problem. It's how do we change culture to ref- mm-hmm. and society to reflect the values that we see embodied in these nerdy, geeky media. So this is absolutely not to say anything to the detriment of One Direction or, or Beyonce fans or something. The one, maybe Swifties, right? Because they're actually affecting change right now with the Ticketmaster thing. So I think that's very interesting. I did interview some BTS fans about some of the protests in the summer of 2020, and BTS fans matched something like a million-dollar donation in 28 hours. Like, talk about networking. So to Black Lives Matter, and really amazing. But we are focusing on these as we see them as more metaphorical and easier to connect individuals with a sustainable sort of hero's journey toward becoming the best activist and hopefully person that they want to be in the world. I know yeah. that was a long answer, but there no, you no, go. it's okay. <laughs> it really sounds like it's more about storytelling and the arc mm-hmm. of a story rather than a particular person, which is what a Beyonce fandom is all about Beyonce. Taylor Swift fandom is about Taylor, although she is a wonderful storyteller and fans kind of extract meaning and interpretation from her music videos and her songs in a different way. But but I get where you're coming from. Kayla, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think something else that is different about popular culture fandom is that, you know, when we're looking at media fans, there's a different kind of accessibility to parasocial relationships than there is in music fandom. So it's not that music, Taylor Swift obviously does talk back to her fans and has a million like Easter eggs and things that she hides in her music videos and in her music to speak to fans, but it's not quite the same as some of the one-on-one conversations that you get to have at say a convention that are behind a paywall, but not nearly the paywall that you would have for a meet and greet for someone like Taylor Swift or Beyonce. Right on. So a few weeks ago, I asked you what your favorite fandoms and pop culture are right now. I know obviously Supernatural is one of them, but you also mentioned Our Flag Means Death. And that is really popular with the fandom forward community. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how you became Our Flag Means Death fans and what that means to you. How much time do we have? (laughs) I'm just living this fandom and it's so much fun. Like I'm enjoying it so much. I watched the show when it came out. Like I like, I knew I would enjoy it. At first I was like, okay, it's fine. 
And then at some point it, like a lot of our experiences, it just took over everything, <laughs> every waking moment of thinking about things. I'm trying not to spoil too for folks. No spoilies, but we'll if, be fine. <laughs> yeah, it's been just a joy. Part of what I love about it is now I'm at this point in my life where this is something I enjoy, but also I engage in academically. So I'm not just enjoying the show and the fandom, I'm watching how the fans are responding. And I find that so encouraging. I think we all needed a lighthouse in the darkness of the last few years. Uh, and that show just is what folks have latched onto. It's very clever. It does a lot of things really well. It's layered, but it's not so heavy that you can't just watch it and enjoy it, right? It's still, it's mm -hmm. speaking of joyfulness and playfulness and pleasure, right? And so watching people that I had seen through the fandom research and fan activism communities rediscover their love of fandom, their engagement, their fan art and fan fiction writing and pick that back up again to such an extent has been inspiring so much so that our second book, Subtle Plug, We'll be working on is a, is a collected essay volume about that very idea of how does this show inspire us? What are some themes we can engage with to talk about it? And we're editors. We're not necessarily writing the whole thing. So it'll be a, a different type of book. But uh, yeah, I said, we got to write about this. This I know our next project. Like our first book wasn't even out yet. And I was messaging Kayla. I know our next project, Kayla. And it's this. <laughs> is that cool? Are you on board? Can I come aboard? Well, and, and I enthusiastically like, hey, was. Yeah. But Kayla's also like, Okay, great, Tanya, but also let's finish these edits. No. Yes. <laughs> well, I for, want that person too. <laughs> well, I will take your subtle plug and return a less subtle plug. As you're writing this book or editing this book, you should talk to the folks at Fandom Forward because we just last summer during Pride Month hosted an event called Our Flag Means Queer Rights, although I should say it was more of a campaign than one event. But we had nearly 400 fans of Our Flag Means Death come together online to fight anti-LGBTQ legislation around the United States, which is important because there's so much legislation out there making trans lives illegal, and we can't have that, right? So we're working pretty hard on those efforts and Our Flag Means Death was a really important part of that as the gay pirate show. And we even had Vico Ortez, who is an actor in the show, join us for one of our conversations, which felt really cool. Right on. I mean, we're always open to it. Our Flag Means Death is so interesting to me because it is so new. It pretty quickly came together as this emerging fandom. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, like this new thing that hasn't been around for many years, like say, Star Wars or, or Lord of the Rings, how fandoms come together in a mm -hmm. short period of time. I think you, you named part of this already, Tanya, with this idea of joy at a time that we really needed joy, but also queer joy in particular. So one of the things that I kept hearing before I watched the show was, it's the gay pirate show. I was like, well, of course I want to watch the gay pirate show. That sounds lovely. And it was the first thing in... I think really ever that I've seen that has that layering, it has that nuance, it has great story, but it doesn't do that through making its queer characters tragedies. They're complex and layered characters. They have tragedy in their lives, but the tragedy is not their queerness. And so that is something that I've seen when I've seen folks sort of migrate to it from other fandoms. Like I've seen a lot of the folks from the Supernatural fandom that I follow also posting fan art and fan fiction 
about our flag means death. And I think that's one of the reasons why is that it's this idea of joy and celebration of identities instead of this sort of tragedy that we're used to seeing. Yeah. I've seen some notable examples of that too in other media that I think I'm I'm actually looking at these other examples as well, the Winona Earp fandom and the uh League of Their Own reboot, where the showrunners, and this gets into parasocial relationships, but I won't go too far down that, but the showrunners and the fans kind of guarantee or verify or vouch <laughs> that we respect you enough to not do a barrier gaze or do a, again, as you put it so eloquently, Kayla, like the gayness or the the queerness is not the tragedy or it's not the only thing about this person. They're a complex character who is many layered, almost like an individual, right? Where that has more going on in their life, where this matters as a plot point. And it's affirming to see these identities represented screen, but to be represented as fully realized developed people, right? Which we don't get in other media. And so once that networking or that word gets out, everyone is like, we're going to show up for this show because we want more of this kind of media. And it's so inspiring to us. And I'm saying me because I'm part of the, all of those groups as well. Yeah. When I first heard about Our Flag Means Death being the gay pirate show, I assumed that there was an element of queer baiting, that it wasn't really about queer characters. But then I was pleasantly surprised to see, no, it's an overt. It's not, we're kind of digging through the subtext and trying to make queer meaning out of the media as we so often have had to in the past. I essentially came out at New York Comic Con because of our flag death, because I'm on a panel and I was asked a question about like, why do you identify or what is special about this or something in the character of Jim, particularly Jim's relationship with Alawande and without spoilers made me go like holding up a mirror and going, okay, I, oh, I'm non-binary <laughs> and I don't know that I'm also hundred percent straight. Oh, wow. And I've known that, but just being able to like see that. And I'm, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm middle-aged. So talk about like finding this show, watching it and just having things click and fall into place. That was just, and it's, it's just such a, my move to like come out at Comic-Con first, like what the hell, but okay, you know, there we go. (laughs) I was just thinking, I don't know, Tanya, that you and I have actually talked about this, but neither of us were out when we started our partnership in in this like lovely research journey that we've been on but I think both of us have found those identities through fandom are you saying that the media and liberal education made you gay totally that's what <laughs> like, why are we winning I, the culture war <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> if no, it's so I, wrong it, why do we always win <laughs> like that joke aside though it's silly because it's like no, we don't feel safe and comfortable. And so when we find something mm-hmm. that, and also you're presented off so often with these cardboard stereotypes of these types of mm-hmm. identities that it doesn't click for you. But then when you see a more layered, more nuanced uh, version of it and it goes, oh, you go, oh, okay, that now I can see that. Now I understand that because my experience wasn't, I'm a hundred percent over here. I'm a hundred percent over here. I have always been non-binary. It just wasn't necessarily something I understood about myself until I had the framework to sort of put that into words and thoughts that made sense to me. It's not that I'm different. (laughs) It's that I have labels now or understanding now. And I don't think I'm the only person who goes through that. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, everybody's journey is different. So that's the other part of this that I think is so amazing is realizing 
showing this with, I love that it has older characters. I love that because I'm getting older. <laughs> and I love that it's got different racial diversity and also indigenous diversity. And, you know, it could do better on some things, of course, but it's got body size and physical beauty appearance diversity, which I think is very, very important. So I, I feel like it hits a lot of the marks there. So now I want to move on to talk about self-care and toxicity in fandom. I know we could talk about Our Flag Means Death until the cows come home, but self-care and toxicity in fandom are two topics that are really important in this book, particularly for a clinical psychologist. You talk about the team effort of fan activism in comparison to groups like the Fellowship of the Rings, the Avengers, the Scooby Gang from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and how that compares to the idea of holding different roles within a group doing fan activism. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept? Yeah, that actually came directly out of clinical work that I was doing with folks who, whether they were directly engaged in activism or not, there can be this pull when you're seeing all of this bad news out in the world that I have to do something, I have to do something, and taking on more of that than any one human can do. And I was watching something where they were making fun of Hawkeye. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes you need to be Hawkeye. Sometimes you are not Iron Man or Captain America. Sometimes you are somebody else on the team and that's okay. We all have our place in that. And that's honestly more sustainable doing that as a team, as opposed to trying to set out on your own and be the hero of every social movement. It's a lot more sustainable to do that together and to focus on when you do need to step forward, and then also maybe when it's time to step back. Yeah, it actually, that section of the book reminded me of something my therapist said recently that I found very helpful as an activist, which is that the journey of life is a little like driving a car, you know, on a road trip. You don't need to know every turn that you're going to make on the trip, you just need to know what the next couple of turns are and roughly where you're going. And also it helps to have a GPS. This is getting further and further away from the idea of mental health. But I just love that idea of you take things kind of one day or one step at a time and you recognize that you're not always going to be Iron Man or the protagonist. You have kind of different shifting roles. Or in the case of this being a Lord of the Rings inspired podcast, Sometimes you have to be Merry and Pippin, but Merry and Pippin were no less important, right? Because that mm-hmm. small thing that they did kind of on their side quest was incredibly consequential for the whole arc of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's important for to support sustainable activism, to support joyful and, and pleasurable activism and social justice work. I think it's important to realize you as one person, you matter a lot and you're very important, but you can't do everything all the time. It's not everything everywhere all at once. And even Evelyn needed help, right? <laughs> like if you want to go to that movie. But it just, I think part of why we connect with these stories, like even Our Flag Means Death or Lord of the Rings, is we see groups of people that have come to think of each other as family or these very close relationships, these found families. And together, they're better than each one person on their own. And I find that really important and reassuring and inspiring, especially in a culture, American culture, where we are so focused on the rugged individual, right? Mm -hmm. Rugged individualism, like this one person going in and fixing everything. And we can't be John McClane, right? In Die Hard. We need to have 
interconnections. We're stronger together and it's more sustainable together. Otherwise we end up with our feet cut up in a dirty old white tank top hanging off the side of Nakatomi Plaza. No, I don't know. I don't really spend a minute. <laughs> and Alan Rickman is there. Yeah. I've never seen Die Hard. The last couple of years, my kid got really into uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and then had to go mm. watch Die Hard because the one character is obsessed with Die Hard. Right? Talk about a fan. I, I love that when shows build in references to fans and fandom. Anyway. Yeah. So it just, I think it's more sustainable. It's more feasible. And if you think about a workplace or any other organization that you're a part of, you don't really just want to depend on one person because that's mm-hmm. that's not that's too much for that individual and it's just not going to accomplish as much or as quickly as you want to get things done there's a reason we specialize in things it's because we all have different skills mm-hmm. and going back to the example of hawkeye i really liked the metaphor that you put together on the six infinity stones of self-care can you explain what that means and why you chose the infinity stones to illustrate that concept. There's a couple reasons that we went with the infinity stones. One of the self-care things I did for myself during the pandemic is I went through and got certified as a yoga instructor and was studying chakras and thought, huh, this sounds a lot like infinity stones. Not the exact same uh, right amount in terms of number, but in terms of color and in terms of the different rights that you talk about with chakras, it was very, very similar. And I had already written up a meditation on that with the pride flag and sort of was able to mesh those things together. The other thing I found really appealing about the infinity stones is that you can't just pick them up and wield them. You have to actually do things and master things in order to use the stones. And that really applies to self-care. You know, we have that saying you can't pour from an empty cup, you have to have a full cup to pour for others. And activism is very much like that. If you aren't taking care of yourself, then you're not going to be able to do the things that you set out to do as an activist. Just like if you don't take care of the things you need to take care of in order to wield an infinity stone, you're not going to be able to wield it. One of the stones, the power stone, is about being able to have physical power. And the opposing force for that stone is mastery of mind. And so one way you could think about this is just we have a mind-body connection. If we're going to be physically powerful, if we're going to be able to, say, go and march in a protest and be on our feet all day, there might be some things that we need to do emotionally and mentally to be able to prepare for that. And so being able to quiet your mind and focus on the present might help you get through what can be a really grueling day of going out and doing something that physical with your body in the name of activism. I also love that back to talking about the power stone and the mind stone. That's such a beautiful framework because it makes me think about anytime, if you've ever done any kind of major endurance sport, a marathon or, or even just some sort of challenge, or it made me think about Kayla, about childbirth, because you're going through labor and it is the most pain that you've maybe experienced or experienced in a while. And it's, you have to kind of just give yourself over to the experience and trust that your body can do it. But that's a lot of that is, is mental. And they coach you a lot of the coaching and the preparation is all about preparing yourself mentally for that physical experience. Yeah. Just reminded me of that. In the book, you write about fandom itself as self-care. What are a few of your favorite examples as fans of fanish self-care? 
For me, I'm a crafter, so I enjoy knitting and crochet. And I realized like my favorite thing is to knit or crochet fandom themed things. So most recently I made a, I don't know that my, my nephew will be a Captain America fan, but he will have a knitted Captain America hat that is amazing. And learning to crochet letters was a skill that <laughs> I didn't know would be so difficult, but I did it. And the next thing I'm going to work on is the lovely snoods from the Netflix series uh, Wednesday. So this is, uh, I, I consider it fandom self-care because it's, I find the most, I'm having the most fun if I can connect all of my different dots. I think also other folks have found fan fiction, right? Or fan art, like creating mm-hmm. fan art, writing fan fiction to be both therapeutic or reading fan fiction to be a way to kind of take a break, recharge. And there's, I will say like when I read fan fiction, there's times when I want different kinds of stories. Like, do I want something that's just very fluffy and like these characters are just going and enjoying tea together or something like that or do I want something more invested and challenging that's going to depend on what kind of recharge I need personally well and I I think you're also speaking to something that is really important there which is that there's the active creating kind of participation in fandom is self-care and then the more passive reading and consuming of things like fan fiction and fan art as self-care. And both of those things can be really important at different times. So like Tanya, I love to craft. I started doing art again because of fandom. And I love doing that. And at the end of a really long day, I don't always want to pull out my art supplies, Mm -hmm. but I do want to pull up AO3. And so that I think feels really accessible in ways that sometimes creating doesn't. Mm-hmm. And fan fiction in particular is also, in addition to being self-care in kind of the traditional sense, is also a way that we can sometimes rewrite stories when they don't quite fit the narratives that we want or delve deeper into characters. There's some really cool research out there on folks using fan fiction as a form of therapy, as a way to sort of rewrite trauma narratives. And so I think there's lots of different ways that folks can use the same types of things for self-care. And I, I will say too, sometimes like you, what you mentioned, Kayla, about I'm too tired sometimes to, to, to do creative stuff. And I will just pull up and look at nerdy and geeky uh, memes. And then I save <laughs> them and, and send them to my kids. And that, I know that that, that sounds really silly, like, but honestly, I realized, oh my gosh, I didn't know I was doing self-care. I was doing self, I'm doing self-care or I will, I like to build cosplays. And so a lot of times cosplay builds start in your head, right? And so mm-hmm. they're like looking for reference images and thinking through where am I going to source this part or this part, or how do I want to build this particular cosplay or what are the steps? And I find that as someone who deals with things, I don't, I haven't said this, shared this yet, but I have anxiety and depression. I I deal with those chronically. I also have diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder. And so that's a way for me to kind of make those parts of my brain happy and also deal with something overwhelming in my personal life because it, it requires a level of specific thinking that gets you kind of fixated in a good way on something Mm -hmm. that is not what you're fixating on in a bad way and obsessing and compulsing over in a bad way. So I've realized I've started to sort of use my love of that way to try to to manage some of those uh, health issues, frankly, and to do self-care. Well, and that accessibility piece is so important because too often when we talk about self-care, we're talking about like 
spa days and things that are frankly like wealthy white woman things to do and not necessarily things that are accessible to everyone. And so, you know, when I talk about self-care with folks, sometimes I'm talking about, you know, making sure that you ate today, making sure that you take a nap when you feel tired, having tea. So being able to access fandom in so many different ways really lends itself to self-care in a way that other things might not. Yeah. And not everyone wants to take off all their clothes and be rubbed by a stranger. I mean, I'm I'm fond of massages, but I get that it's not for everyone. Everyone has different comfort levels. And I like this idea of giving people a sense of, oh, there's self-care for geekiness. mm -hmm. I love that. And for what you like is different from someone else's. You're saying like, I love massage. And so I proposed to my partner, I was like, hey, maybe we should go get couples massages for a gift together. (laughs) His reaction was like, strangers who I can't see coming touching me is not my idea of a good time. I want to go. What I want to do is one of those sensory deprivation chambers where like, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything, you're floating. And I'm like, wow, we are on completely opposite ends of this what sounds restorative to us spectrum because that sounds like a nightmare to me (laughs) but for him him, it was like this is this sounds great I don't have to see or think or talk to anybody yeah and so it's just funny like figuring that out I think is important as well like okay what can I do that's accessible what can I do that's immediate what's but also I just don't like this particular kind of self-care so do something else it doesn't have to be somebody else's definition Yeah. And my last question for you, which I'm sorry to say could be its own episode of this podcast, is how does self-care and fandom help you combat the toxic behaviors we see, whether it's cyberbullying, parasocial relationship problems, doxing, those sorts of things? Yeah. It goes a little bit back to what we were talking about with mindfulness and being able to ground and center. I think that one of the things that I think about with toxic fandom is that when you're encountering it, in order to do anything about it, you have to first be able to kind of check your emotional reaction and be able to engage in a way that's going to be effective. I think we all have a tendency when things like that come up to want to just sort of scream back into the void, especially when things are happening online. And oftentimes that doesn't really get us anywhere. And so being able to come back to that why of why we care about fandom, why we care about activism, and centering in that then helps us go forward and actually do something about it. Or just simply take a break and not engage. Sometimes that is the action that's required. Mm -hmm. And I think boundaries are really important here as well. Like you, you have the power to create the experience you want to have. I I understand we can't control other people. Okay. We know this, but we can control ourselves and we can try to build the spaces and experiences that we find most reassuring and safe. So if engaging with this particular fandom that's being difficult on Twitter is an issue, block that hashtag, leave that space, go find a Tumblr space or a different part of that fandom, or just Stop interacting with the fandom for a while and enjoy the product on your own, right? Mm -hmm. Do your own, find a a few trusted folks you can talk to. It's kind of like choosing at what level to engage. And then I, I set boundaries. Like I will disengage with things if I find them to be not appropriate or toxic. 
just kind of walk away and go and slowly back away or Nick Miller moonwalking away. Um, like new girl, right. You know, I'll just moonwalk out of here and then we'll go to this other thing for a while because you do, it does things flare up too. And humans are political and there's reasons people get into these particular nadirs, if you will, of fandom being great and then kind of having a moment. So I would say though, there's almost always more to that. If there's one particular aspect that's being difficult, there's probably another group over here that's not going to, that's going to respect your boundaries and be less focused on that really not great part of it. Right on. I think that's just about it. Is there anything that either of you would like to share that we haven't covered? We're pretty findable on social media. If you, if you want to, I am in particular, uh, if you want to have any discussion or ask questions about things, we're there. I am less findable on social media, but findable through our book page. Tanya and Kayla, thank you so much for joining us on this special episode of Shireside Chats. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fandom Made Me is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and Tim Parsons, and of course, to our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>